Hello, and welcome to Gilead. I'm Rebecca Anderson, one of the pastors, and I'm so glad you found us. This Lent, our theme is Punks Not Dead, stories of what refused to die. March 26, 2023, Stu P., sorry, that's student pastor to you, Stu P. as Pence preached about what has to die so something new can happen, and also whether we ought to help kill it. It was a service with a lot of geese in it, but no Mary Oliver poems, which was confusing, but good. Here's Ez. Thomas Edward Jackson was a Methodist circuit rider who studied at Oxford and came to the occupied land of a number of indigenous people, such as the Adena people, such as the people of the Iroquois Confederacy. Now it's called Tucker County, West Virginia, USA. And he would preach in the morning and lead mine, ride his horse to Shaffertown, preach in the afternoon, ride again to preach at the tent meeting in Horseshoe Run in the evening, crash at a farmer's place, ride his horse back to his wife and his seven children, and lead mine the next morning. He was my great-great-great-grandfather. And I like kind of get this because I preached this morning at Hyde Park Union Church, and I'm preaching again at Gilead, and it makes me feel a little bit how I imagine he felt like, except I don't have a horse. Um... <laughs> I just take the red line, so. You know, everyone in my family down the line from him to me was born into the Methodist Church, from Thomas to Charles to James to Bernadette to Robert, my father, to me. I was a dyed-in-the-wool Wesleyan, kind of an heir to the holiness movement, if you will. Uh, but I abdicated, I guess. Now I'm a Baptist. But as a child, I was taken by Robert, my father, every summer to the Eastern Michigan Free Methodist Camp meeting up in Otisville, Michigan. And it's important to note, because I can feel her behind me, um, sort of astral projecting. She's still alive. Um, uh, she would want me to note that my mother is a lot more free Methodist than my father. She's related to more people who went to Asbury. Her folks go back to Rochester, where they rubbed elbows with egalitarian, anti-classist, abolitionist, and founder of free Methodism, B.T. Roberts. So it was just my dad's thing that he took us. They're very divorced. Um, just so that makes sense. Um, and part of the first generation of free Methodists who could say that they were divorced without shame. Anyway, every summer I would eat ice cream, ride my bike on the trails, play hooky from kids' church, and swim in the Green Lake. Um, and in the lake, I was like a weird kid. Um, I, they had these pool noodles um, that sort of sectioned off the swim areas by like ability and by age, and I would swim up to them and just take a big old chomp right out of them. Um, it's the texture, it's the taste of the lake. Um, I remember singing also the song, uh, Content Notice, uh, CCM, uh, Hosanna quite a bit as a camper and as a counselor who worked at that camp. I won't quote the lyrics because they're kind of corny as shit, but they talk about like this near revival. And Free Methodists that I grew up around talked for years about the coming revival. From the time I was literally in elementary school to the time I was a senior in college steeped in Free Methodism, but nobody could articulate to me what a revival looked like. And historically, it looks a lot like the camp meeting that my dad was taking, that my dad would take me and my siblings to, that he and my mother had attended growing up in mid-Michigan. That's just kind of like what the textbook definition of a revival is. You hang out in a tent or a tabernacle, hear the preacher, sing a little, somebody might pass out, um, garbles a little bit in gibberish, bing, bang, boom, you go to Lucky's Steakhouse after and forget to tip your waitress. Um, <laughs> That was just growing up Pentecostal adjacent. But believe it or not, Free Methodist camp meetings saved my life. 
which is like, sorry, that's like a lead into a totally different story than what I'm going to tell. Um, but this is the story about how I, the summer after I deconstructed, when I decided that I would leave the institution of free Methodism as soon as I could, in the same place where my mother and father found Christ, I was accomplice to a felony. It's funny, um, which I don't, I don't mind admitting it. I think that the FBI has us all, not like just like specifically Gilead, but like the civilian population, kind of tapped and bugged anyway. Someone asked me on TikTok Live if my hair was a wig, and I just want to clear the air and say yes, that it is. It's lined with tinfoil. Um, we live in a surveillance state, FYI. Anyway, back to the felony. Um, I, was I was comfortably 20 having acclimated to the new normal of my evangelical Christian college, its beats, its ebbs, its flows, its staunch temperance tradition. You couldn't drink, even though even if you were 21, and charismatic worship. I was spending the summer at the conference's camp working as a counselor, and on my one day off, dragging myself down the shortcut along the lake to the dining hall, I saw a feathery lump on the sand of the beach. And all of my instincts and training, not only as a counselor kicked in, but also as a lifeguard, and part of my job as a lifeguard was to keep the pH levels of the lake kind of goose shit free so the kids could swim in it. And I ran my arms wide, just screaming at this immobile lump. My flailing kind of waned as I saw it was not running away, but just beginning to struggle. It flapped its head from side to side, its hose-like neck just bending, wings unfurling and stalling in mid-stride. This is when two other counselors, we can call them Eric and Cameron, came walking down the trail. And we stood under the cabana a couple feet away from the goose, watching as it was just plainly suffering. We figured that one of the kids in the RV park or an animal must have gotten to it. Um, but the thought was it was going to die. And Eric's first impulse was to put the goose out of its misery which he immediately attempted to follow in a rather brutal fashion. Um, he was my and Cameron's supervisor, though not much older than us. We should have stopped the mercy killing of the goose, and yet for some reason we didn't until Cameron, a farm boy, decided he had had enough of Eric's brutality, asked me to fetch a shovel and a trash bag from the boathouse, and I brought it back to him, and he asked me to bring him a boat, and I rowed that to him. And as I walked back to get the boat, I turned to see Eric take a couple of steps back and just cover his eyes as Cameron raised the shovel above his head, poised straight down guillotine style for the goose's neck. And I turned away. So technically, I wasn't there when the felony was committed. Um, I was kind of like over by the boathouse. And when I came back, Cameron and I rode the canoe in silence across the lake to just dispose of the body. It felt like a mob movie. And Cameron finally made eye contact with me and went, he's kind of fucked. And I said, yeah. And we really didn't speak about it much after that. And if I may be so bold, let me ruffle your feathers, so to speak. Um, the church is kind of that goose beating its head against the sand, shuddering and gasping and flailing, just kind of point blank dying or on its way, at least. And you're like, no shit, I read the Pew Research articles. Um, and anyway, it's not the church that I grew up in that's dying. It's not the evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, in case you didn't know, are doing great. The kind of evangelical that I grew up being, the Methodists and descendants of borderline Pentecostal and charismatic, speaking in tongues, kind of holiness movement like I talked about. But also, beyond them, more generally, 
um, heirs to the fundamentalist side of the debate, law and order, conservative evangelical Christianity, Ronald Reagan coded, Jesus only came to die but not to live, kind of cupcakes at the purity ball and white supremacy, American flags on stage kind of churches. Yeah, they're doing great. We have evidence of that from January 6th apologists on the news to, an to genocidal anti-trans legislature to statistics that just show that conservative evangelicals are doing great. And those kinds of evangelicals just saw what they've been hoping for for years, a revival on the campus of the grounds of one of their most popular schools, Asbury University. A revival. A meeting in which the spirit of God moves and lives are changed and commitments forged and reforged. This event, which was covered by the New York Times, this descent of like 50,000 people into Lil Wilmore, Kentucky for 16 days of, like what exactly? Footage of, on TikTok shows 19-year-olds bouncing and bobbing to what sounds like the Lumineers or Coldplay, but what is actually watered-down populist theology, the gospel packaged for easy consumption. Stories of lives changed in the name of a Jesus who in the evangelical subconscious plays second fiddle to John Wayne. But I'd say, and I'd say something if you, and say something if you agree, uh, that until institutions of a conservative evangelical Christianity that I used to belong to, remember, repent of their sins, of willingly participating in death-dealing necro-theologies, literally just meaning dead theologies that wound and scar marginalized people, theologies that lead to, I don't know, where the fuck we are in this nonsense institution of a country in this moment in time, until we set, see an end of all of this. And this is the part where you say something, maybe amen. All of their revivals, all of their revivals mean nothing. That's in the Bible. It's Amos 5, 23, 24, motherfucker. Take away from me the noise of your song to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Thanks. And might I ruffle you a little bit more and say that even good mainline Protestant churches, you know, the other half of the equation sort of in the mind of the Pew Research Forum, like us or not, whatever your deal is, labels are weird. We have to acknowledge that abuse and oppression can still occur in these churches and that these churches are human institutions and subject to sin and error. And until that happens, we will not see the revival of our churches that we are longing to see. And we need an honest recognition of the state of things. We are dying. And the question is, are you going to leave the church on the beach to fucking suffer? Or are you going to do something about it? Is there anything to be done? Ezekiel, a prophet of God, was surrounded by people who thought everything, despite circumstances, was just going to work out. There was, in my commentary on this book about the Babylonian exile, sort of a bullish attitude about these people who, even after the fall of their city of Jerusalem, believed that they would see a day where things would just turn in their favor. Ezekiel, as a prophet, does what prophets do and turns their misguided notions of prosperity kind of on their head and says, I had this vision where, led by the hand of God, I descended into a valley deep and still and full of dry human bones. And God led me around and around, that's the Hebrew, it's not just around once, but around and around these long dead remains. God, as we heard, or sorry, this is my sermon from this morning, as God asks Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones live? And he responds in kind of what I think is a bullshit cop-out, but also like, what kind of question is that, God? Um, mortal, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, oh God, only you know. 
And so God then commands Ezekiel to do what he ought to do and prophesy to the bones, to give them the word of God that is this. I will cause breath, or in the Hebrew, ruach, to also meaning spirit, to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am God. And Ezekiel, to his cool, kind of keeps... To his credit, keeps his cool in the valley full of dead people and just says this over the bones. And a chilling rattle echoes through the valley and the bones come together and they take on sinew, new sinew and new flesh. And God commands Ezekiel again to call upon the breath of God, the spirit, so that the bones might live, which they do. And then they rise, coming to their feet in a vast multitude. And when I see the scene playing out in my mind, I put myself in Ezekiel's place and just hear the pop of tendons connecting and sort of the wet squick of skin sliding over bare muscle, over bone, real explicit, kind of gross, messy sounds, like, I don't know, stirring a thing of Shibani yogurt in a quiet lapse in conversation. <laughs> Think something like that. The gross embodied sounds of enfleshment, of being made new. See, this is not, just to be clear, a story about resuscitation and revival in which what was dead just comes back kind of as it was. This is a story, this story is an allegory and a mystical vision about the iniquities and sin and depraved bullshit of our human institution and how God deals with it, how God looks at our mortifying skeletal remains, looks at it, has mercy on it, puts new flesh on it, we need God to give us the words that lead to this made new this, this new enfleshment. See, I don't really know if the goose was going to die. That was just kind of Eric's instinct. He could have been wrong. The goose could have just been like a little crossfaded or was kind of having like a little episode. I get that. But Eric's bullish insistence on what he thought was the state of things led to this Sopranos-esque hit on the goose. But y'all, the church is dying not dead yet and I don't know sometimes I'm like just let it let the church rooted in power and distorted by empire and in the business of death dealing oppression yeah maybe let that shit die for sure actually and maybe I don't know the expressions of Christianity that are at least trying to negotiate that history maybe they might die too but honestly whatever not being glib, like I mean that, seriously. We are resurrection people. As we continue this march, this approach to the cross during the season of Lent, we know that what dies doesn't always stay dead. And we know that when we are open to it, this enfleshing breath of God, the spirit will see us through to not the ends that we think, but radically new and different ends. This text in Ezekiel as well also speaks to our need to see these institutions as what they are made of, being made of real bodies. We cannot care more about the institution we are trying to save than the people who make it up. We cannot pretend like everything is fine at a real human cost. We cannot ha have the same bullshit, bullish attitude about the state of things. And we are seeing the cost of churches ignoring the state of things. People are just fucking deucing out. And it's not just the evangelicals who have this problem. For real, mainline Protestants, churches like the ones that I left free Methodism to find refuge in as a queer and trans person, 
Those churches can also uphold fucked up and oppressive power dynamics as such and as any other church. What we ought to do is invest in people and not in our human institutions. The work of the church on earth is good, but there's like this whole ass world to come. And there's a poem named after the Archbishop of El Salvador, uh, Oscar Romero, who was assassinated for his radical liberation theology. And it says, it helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. This work that we do, that we, we do, this work of revival and enfleshing towards it, it will probably surpass us. We ought, what we ought to do now is invest in this vast multitude that really needs this word. And honestly, this is the part where if we were at a different kind of church, the Hammond organ would start playing. But seriously, take heart. Capital C Church might be fucking dying, but I think we are doing a damn good work here at Gilead. And we're not perfect. We're fallible and capable of sin. Duh, we're fucking human. But keep going. Keep going. Keep speaking the words of God's spirit, words of enfleshment of what the philosopher Myra Rivera articulates as sort of a personhood beyond just your individual al- individuality, beyond your body, beyond just yourself, a collective sense of self. Speak words of justice, words that resist the heady blend of religion and empire, words that breathe new life into what was once believed to be dying, dying, dead. Take heart, be open to the spirit. And tell someone, if we want to see a newly enfleshed church, we need that vast multitude. You want a new church founded on a no-bullshit sense of work and commitment? And I'm serious. We are doing that good work, and yet there is still so much work to be done. And without the breath of God in us, God's spirit, this ruach, we know that we will never see the revival that we're hoping for. But it's long anticipated, and it's out there. Whether you've known you've wanted it or not. Amen.